So just a quick introduction. Uh, my name is Anthony Chaya. Right now I'm living in Arkansas. I grew up in Ohio. I used to live in Hawaii for 10 years. And I had an office job for 19 years. For 19 years. When I first started working, um, it was during college age, I had a nighttime job at a BP gas station as the cashier. And one man came in to rob me one night, actually. That's for another day. But my parents were very afraid. They wanted me to do something different. And, but I had dreams, even there at the cashier, thinking about the book I would write one day when I was successful. And I was going to name it BP to VP. You know what I mean? It was going to be great. So I had, I had really high aspirations as a young guy. Actually, I left there and I worked for an Adventist uh, mental health institute. Um, also night, from midnight to noon, long sessions as a security guard. And I had to actually restrain many people in that job, protecting the psych techs and things from combative patients. Uh, so I've had a varied experience. It wasn't long after that that I joined a company in the corporate world and moved up very quickly. By the time I was 23, I was a supervisor of two departments. Uh, our company was bought out by another company and I left and started a small computer consulting company. Uh, we actually sold off that business and I moved to Hawaii with my wife who was gonna take her second master's degree in education there. We lived there for 10 years and my, both of my daughters were born there. And I now have a little son and during my time there, um, I began to coach basketball and got some success. But that success, the more and more I was successful in that, the worse and worse my life was. The relationship with my wife was awful. Um, the, the way my health wasn't all that good, and I started making bad choices. I was knowingly and willfully breaking the laws of God. Um, but through all that, the Lord is patient and merciful. And he reached me and brought me into uh, a knowledge of his truth. And so I'm going to share some of what he's taught me since then. Um, and so I want to go to our theme passage to start with. Our theme passage to start with. Let's go to John Chapter 15, our theme is abiding in Christ. And by the way, I'm going to warn you today, I'm going to talk about things that if you're perfectly satisfied with your life the way it is, you might not like to hear it. Do you understand that? There was a rich young ruler who was pretty satisfied with his life, except he wanted the consolation of knowing that he was going to enter the kingdom of God. He wanted to have assurance that he was going to enter, and so he came to the master thinking that he had everything in order. And of course, he left there sorrowing. Um, so I just want to warn you ahead of time. If you like your life just the way it is, and if you weren't at the morning session, when we looked at the garden of our heart, when we looked at the field, the fallow field of our heart, and we assessed the field and we said, there's nothing of value in there. So we're willing to plow it all under. So if you haven't done that with me this morning, I want you to do that again. Look at the 
fallow ground of your heart. That means like whatever's been growing there. Just uncultivated, there it is, from the experiences of life, from our education, from whatever it is, it's been growing. And unless it's been built by God, I want you to say, you know, silently in a prayer to God, you can have it all. Let's plow it under and let's replace it with what you have. So that's a quick warning and encouragement because there's going to be some beautiful things here that we talk about. So let's go to John chapter 15. And this is common. You've probably heard it in some of the other talks, but I'll probably call out a few different things. It says here, I am the vine, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Now, most people focus on Christ here, but I want to just pause and say that God the Father is the husbandman. What does that mean, husbandman? He's the gardener. That means he's the one casting away the seed in hope for fruit. Do you understand? He's the one who cast away his son looking for fruit, looking for you. So God the Father is such a, he's such an investor in your eternal life. God the Father is. And so we're going to talk very quickly about God the Father, and we're going to go back to the first garden ever planted on earth. Let's go to Genesis. Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. We see here something. And another principle while you're looking at this, another principle we talked about this morning is that we must be honest, right? When truth comes, we must be honest and recognize truth. If truth is mingled with error and you go through that process and recognize truth, then error will stand alone and it's easy to cast it out. But if you try to accept a whole package rather than just recognizing what's true and then letting the error stand, it's very easy to accept something that's wrong. But here's what it says in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water, and God said, let there be light. Okay, I can tell that we are desensitized. Do you realize I used to teach kindergarten, kindergarten in a Sabbath school, okay, kindergarten. We had a five-year-old boy come in one day. He was a visitor. And I had all these plans of my lessons. And so he came in, and I got to know him. And I asked him, um, you know, do you go to church regularly? No, I've never been to church. Do you, do you know who Jesus is? No. Do you know who created the world? No. So I said, okay, throw out the lessons. Let's pull out the... <laughs> Genesis 1-1, and we started to go through this. And when I explained to him, I said, and God said, let there be light. God actually spoke words, and there was light. This little boy started to laugh uncontrollably. He was like, ha, 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 that's great. That's awesome. Like, there's someone who can speak, and there it is. And so I actually just read you the same text, and you know what you did? You're desensitized. So remember, it's very important for us to be honest. Be honest. A lot of what we have, let's be honest, our education system has actually been lacking. You have been trained, whether you know it or not, you've been trained to learn something cognitively and do nothing with it. Just repeat that you know it. Prove that it's stored up here. 
And then once you've proven that, even let that go because you have another test coming. Do you understand? Now, this is a problem because Jesus says, he that builds his house on the rock is he that heareth my words and doeth them. So you've actually been trained away from the gospel of Christ. Do you understand that? Now, that means we have something to overcome. We have something to overcome. Now, I live in Arkansas, and I'm farming now. So when I go out to the field, I don't know if you've been there, but a lot of people there call it Rockinsaw because it's so rocky. In fact, our capital is Little Rock. I mean, it's, it's rocky. It's almost like this, except smaller, Little, little Rocks, <laughs> and lots of them. And so we have something to overcome if we want to plant in that ground. We have something to overcome the cultivated and maybe even inherited habits that we have. So we see here that God was speaking with his mouth. We also know that he was making things with his hands. And we see that God created uh, an earth. But did you know he didn't just create? He created the earth. And sometimes we call that the Garden of Eden, right? But actually the Garden of Eden wasn't the whole earth. It was just a portion of the earth. And so let's go look at that. Let's go look in chapter 2, verse 8. It says here, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Who was the first gardener? God. First gardener. He planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden. Do you know how fruit becomes sweet? I'm going to take a side step real quick. Do you know how fruit becomes sweet? The, the light of the sun. The light of the sun. So let's go back to school. You ready to go back to school? Do you remember chemistry? Maybe biology. There's something called photosynthesis. That's where a plant converts light into energy or nutrition, okay? Plant nutrition and food nutrition in the, in the fruit. So what happens is the plant actually takes in carbon dioxide, okay? So that's CO2. It takes that in and the light, and in the presence of water, which is what? H2O. So you have CO2 and H2O. And through a process of photosynthesis, it takes the carbon off of the O2, okay? And it separates them. And it doesn't need the O2 anymore. By the way, what's O2? Pure oxygen. And the plant says, we don't need that, and it lets it go. And that's why it's good to have trees and plants, maybe even in your home. And it lets it go. So now we have carbon and water, H2O. And it attaches those two together. And you have something that we call carbohydrate. Carb carbohydrate. Carbohydrate. Right? And so all it is is carbon and water. But mixed in, captured in that molecule, is the energy from the sun, which chemistry cannot rightly represent okay do you understand now when we digest energy that came that way we just do the opposite we eat the carbohydrate and we separate the carbon 
and the, the, the water, the hydration, and that water, we either sweat out, breathe out, because we breathe out mist with their air, or we urinate it, okay? The carbon goes into our lungs, and we mix it with oxygen, the O2 that we got from the plant, and we reattach the carbon to the O2, and we put that out. So we actually let off the water and the carbon, and guess what we kept? The energy from the sun. Okay? That's a beautiful thing. Now, when God planted a garden, his light that he created before the sun, do you remember? Day one, let there be light. The sun was on what day? Way later, right? God created special light. And when that light goes through photosynthesis in a plant, it actually lets the person who eats the fruit of, their, of, of that plant live forever. It perpetuates life. Do you understand that? That's the tree of life. The fact that the tree had no power of itself, actually, just like we have no power of ourselves, but just being in the presence of the Holy Father, God, the creator, who has life in himself, his light would shine on the tree, and the fruit that we would eat would actually create life in us, sustain life perpetually in us. So you know this story. By the way, I want to make one quick point. Was there a fence around this garden in the Garden of Eden? No, we'll talk more about that in the next session. We're going to talk a little bit of it now. But there was no fence because there was no danger of thievery. Okay, there was no sin, nothing to fence out. You know the story that Adam and Eve sinned. Now immediately, immediately God the Father, who's so holy that just the light that radiates from him going through a tree perpetuates life. Thank you, Brother Arden. He had to leave. He had to withdraw himself to heaven out of the presence of man immediately. So God had to withdraw himself, and that was an act of mercy, right? Because if he had remained in close proximity to Adam and Eve, they would have been consumed. So God, the Father who loves his children so much, had to leave. Now, you, you heard earlier in Sabbath school today the pastor hold his daughter and say, I wouldn't give her for you. God the Father, when we sinned, had to step away. Had to step away. Now, an amazing thing happens, though. An amazing thing happens. Adam and Eve are now very afraid, and rightly so, because if God comes and visits him the way that he had in the past, they would be consumed. They were naked. They no longer had his glory surrounding them, and they knew it. They felt cold for the first time. And I want you to hear something very interesting, though. In verse 8 of chapter 3, verse 8 of chapter 3, you may have read this before, but there's so much depth. We're told that we need to plow deep in the scriptures, that there are treasures lying below the surface. Are you familiar with that? So let's go a little bit below the surface here. And here's what it says. And they, that's Adam and Eve, 
in a sinful state, heard the voice of the Lord walking. The Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Okay? Even in a sinful state, Adam and Eve could still hear the voice of God when they were in the garden. Okay? Now, let's go look at the next garden that we have a record of that God planted. Um, It may not actually be the next, but let's go look at Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5. And see how it's changed. Now, I know... I know that it's actually a little different depending on what version of the Bible you have. Uh, But the principles are the same. And if you take the whole word, then you would still come to the same conclusion. But only a few uh, versions that I've found still hold on to um, the way the King James and the Geneva, and the Young's Literal, and the Wycliffe Bible. They all say the same thing, so it's not just the King James here. Um, But the New King James, the NIV, and some others don't actually read the same way. Um, So I'm just letting you know that if yours doesn't read how I'm going to read it, that's why. Here's the second garden God plants. Now will I sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard and a very fruitful hill. And he did what? Fenced it. Fenced it. Now, some of you skip right to gathering the stones out and leave out the fence, which would be disastrous. Have you ever planted a garden without a fence? I actually did it last year in Arkansas because we planted... Uh, 140 fig trees and we planted 150 blueberry bushes and we planted 800 strawberry plants and so by the time it came garden time like vegetable time we were a little late already so I just plowed up the ground and planted and I've done that in Ohio and even though we have deer there people go there to hunt deer um, you know we've always gotten harvest but in Arkansas those deer are so hungry for something good that we got zero not one thing. They every eggplant plant, ate every tomato plant, every bean plant, every squash plant. I mean, things that if you look up, they say deer don't even like some of these things. And they, they just wipe them down to the ground. Okay, so what we had really was just a dirt patch with eventually weeds growing in it. The first thing God does with the garden is he fences it. But he didn't do that in the garden. So why? Why now? Because of sin. sin, There are actually dangers. Okay, so we're now looking at the heart again. The first thing we need to do spiritually, brothers and sisters, is put a fence up. Okay? You need to put a fence up. Put a fence up. That's the first thing the Lord did in his garden in a sinful state, is put a fence up. Then he was able to gather out the stones thereof. And what else? And then he planted it with the choicest vine. Who's the true vine? Jesus. If you want Jesus abiding in your heart and in your life, you first need to put a fence up. 
If you think you can let all the enemies into your mind and into your life and still have the choices vine planted and survive in you, you're, you're gravely mistaken. Nature testifies against it. Nature testifies against it. Okay? But there's an important thing I want you to note. Some of you were here last night for um, Brother Andre's talk. It was very powerful. Do you remember? And there was an enemy that he said to catch. Does anybody, do anybody remember what enemy he said to catch? The little foxes. He said the little foxes, right? So it wasn't the deer that it said to catch. It was the little foxes. So, you know, this year I told my wife, I said, if there's one thing we need in the garden more than anything this year, even more than irrigation, is we need a fence. So we put up a fence. Actually, Stephen came out and he helped pound the post. Thank you, Stephen. Um, and we put up a fence and the deer were being kept out. And all you should have seen, we had bean plants. Our strawberry plants were surviving. We had um, squash. We have watermelon plants. We have sweet potatoes. We have garbanzo beans. Oh, we have a pretty big garden. I planted 1,500 watermelon plants. I don't know if you know how that sprawls. <laughs> we had, yeah, we have a lot of watermelons. But do you know what? We had a drought. And so our watermelons had no water in them. And, but they were still growing. I mean, they can survive. They, they end up being smaller and sometimes a little pithy. Um, but very sweet, actually. And we went away to another conference to speak up in Ohio for West Salem Mission, if you're familiar with them. They're like some Amish people who have just come into the Adventist message. So we went up there to run a children's program. And we were away for two weeks. When we came back, we had torrential rains while we were gone. And so do you know what happens when fruit gets no rain for a long period of time and then gets an outpouring? It splits. It splits. Our watermelons were split, bursting. Now, this is an important spiritual lesson, my friends, because we know that the Lord will very soon pour out his spirit upon all flesh. And if you're not taking drinks from the outpouring of the Holy Spirit now when it's like light rains daily, then when that pouring comes, it's actually going to burst. You're not going to be able to contain it. Okay? Now, that caused another problem because when those watermelons burst when we weren't there and they sat there for a few days, guess what they did? They started to stink. And guess what smelled that? The little foxes called raccoons. Okay, and those raccoons, they can climb a fence. And so those raccoons had a heyday. And we lost something like seven or 800 watermelons. And at that time in Arkansas, because not a lot of agriculture was going on, the watermelons were going anywhere from 12 to $15 a piece. So even if we could get 10, 800 watermelons times 10, that's $8,000 those little foxes took from me, you know, and my family. They would actually eat my children until they starved. That's how bad our enemy is. He would steal food from babies. We've got to have a fence. But the important thing is, 
I would have never understood anything about those little foxes. Never, never even had a chance to if I didn't have my fence up. Because the deer would have come and eat all the plants before it ever came to fruit and before those little foxes came in. So here's the important thing. When you set your fence, it doesn't mean you're safe. What it means is you're keeping the exterior enemies out so that you can start to deal with the enemies that are inside the fence. You understand? There are things in your life, brothers and sisters, that need to be fenced out. And once they're fenced out, you will then have a chance to deal with those little foxes, those enemies in your life. But if you don't fence out the big ones, those little ones can live among your garden and you'd never know. They never reveal themselves. So the first thing God did in a sinful garden was fence it. Gather out the stones thereof and plant it with the choicest vine. So today... My first appeal to you is I want you to take time and think about where you want your fence to be laid. You know, when I first started putting a fence out, we went way too big. We went way too big. Because, again, we were, it's, it's hard in Arkansas. <laughs> Even pounding a post, sometimes you're hitting it, you know, a long time before it sinks into the ground. And... Um, but I wanted to fence in a little bit of the shade because it gets hot there. We have a little creek, a wet weather creek that runs there, and I wanted that to be inside the garden. So that way the people working in there would not feel like they're trapped in the heat of the sun, but they would have these wonderful things inside the garden. But we ran out of time, so we ended up having to shrink it. But what that did is actually shrink the area, shrink the area that the enemies could reside. You know, they can reside outside, shrink the area of protection. So I just want you to think to yourself, what, where do I want my fence? What are the enemies keeping me from dealing with those little foxes that are already getting on the inside of my fence and I just don't know? Okay? That's the first lesson. And that's what I actually wanted to share this morning is building a fence. So now it may feel like a slight transition, but it's not. We are now separated from God the Father. Out of his mercy, he's withdrawing himself. There's nothing he wants more than to abide with you. When he made the garden, where was the tree of life? In the midst of the garden. Okay, that means that he was going to be close enough to that tree of life so that his light would shine on it, that tree of life. His light would shine on it. He was going to be right there with the people. Now, he has this other garden, and this one brings forth wild grapes. And so, I want you to notice something. God, who is so holy in the Garden of Eden, has to withdraw himself to heaven. He eventually takes the tree of life away. The tree of life away. And it says in the Bible, let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Why did he have to take the tree of life away? This is in chapter 3, verse 22. It says here, and the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Even in a sinful state, that tree, which had just been in the presence of our Father in heaven, that tree contained such power that it would have sustained life, evil life, 
forever. Do you realize how, how awesomely life-giving our God is? Now let's fast forward. Let's go to Exodus. Exodus. And we're going to go to chapter 19. Here's a group of people, God's chosen people, the covenant people. In Exodus chapter 19. And we're going to look. God was about to give them his Ten Commandments. Now, can the Ten Commandments give life? No. They're a transcript of his character. They convict us of sin. It's that conviction of sin that actually brings death. It's the sin itself that brings death. Look at this. In verse 11, it says, God was about to come down, and it says, And be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai, and thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount, or touch the border of it. Do you know how dangerous it was even just to touch the border of something that God was on? See, the tree had no sin. Do you understand? So the tree could still, still sustain sinful life. But if the people were in the presence of God, they would die. They would be destroyed. Remember, Moses went to God and said, show me your glory. And what did God say? Yeah, he only showed him his back because he says, no man sees my face and lives. God is so holy that man cannot live in his presence. The plan of redemption is to get us back to where we can live in his presence. Okay? That's what God wants. Now, because we could not behold God without dying, God, through his infinite wisdom and plan of redemption, did something amazing. Through his son, he veiled his glory in humanity and sent, sent God in the form of his son, in human form, to the earth so that we could look on his face. And the Bible says that we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. Isn't that a powerful thing? We have the opportunity to look at the face of Jesus and discern the glory of God. Oh, that's so beautiful. Do you know how beautiful God is? When he came, little children would climb up onto his lap, most likely grabbing his beard on the way up. The God that's so holy that you couldn't even touch the border of the mountain that he was on, even though he was covered in a cloud, now children could do pull-ups on his beard. Turn with me to 1 John. Okay. 1 John chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says here, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our eyes and which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. Do you realize he's saying that their hands handled, handled the word of life? Isn't that amazing? Now, you're still desensitized, I know. You know, you've got to overcome this thing. You've got to look deeper. John, he was the one that he kept saying that Jesus loved him, right? And he would lay on Jesus' chest. Now, when I read that, I thought, originally, I thought, that's a little strange. Would I, like a man, lay on another young man's chest? Even if I like him, even if he's a good teacher. But do you realize John knew he was laying on the chest of the one who has life in him. He was laying on his creator. He was laying on the one who knew him before he was even formed in the womb. I think I'd be laying on his chest too. I'd be laying on his chest too. But one thing that I want to call out here is that Jesus says through John that we heard him we saw him, and we've handled him. Now, we know through inspiration that, that Jesus in his teaching never dealt with... What? He never dealt with the abstract. He knew all the mathematical formulas. He created them. He knew chemistry behind the scenes. He knew all these things, but he did not deal in the abstract. He dealt with the tangible, the things people could see, that they could hear, and that they could handle with their own hands. And do you realize that was the original plan in the garden? I'm going to read to you some amazing things, okay? Now, this is where your life might change a little bit. Maybe we should pray first. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have heard the story of redemption before. And we have heard that your word created the world. And we have heard the words of the Bible spoken in many sermons, rearranged in different ways, trying to attract us to your infinite um, wisdom, the beauty of your character, and the invitation into your heavenly kingdom. But I pray now for the Holy Spirit. Because there's a side to your word that we're missing. We don't just want to accept the giver of the word, but we want to accept what you say. And so now I pray that you would give us conviction. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. I'm going to show you the role of nature. God created the earth, not abstractly, not for without a plan, or not just because. He could have done anything he wanted, and he did exactly what he did because he knew it was for you. Let's look at this first quote. It says, many illustrations from nature are used by the Bible writers, just like John 15. I am the true vine, ye are the branches. Okay? And as we observe the things of the natural world, we shall be enabled under the guiding of the Holy Spirit more fully to understand the lessons of God's word. Now, you're here at a conference to more fully understand the lessons of God's word, are you not? Well, this says, in order to do that, in order to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, we pray for the Holy Spirit. 
But did you know inspiration tells us that the sincerity of our prayer is measured by the amount of effort we put in the same direction? So if we're praying for the Holy Spirit, we need to give every effort to receive the Holy Spirit. And this is saying that under the guiding of the Holy Spirit, when we observe the things of the natural world, we will more fully understand the lessons of God's Word. Do you know why? Because the natural world isn't like carnal like we think it is. It's evidence that God's Word holds in itself life and that when He speaks, something comes from nothing. Okay? This, even as marred as it is, is still a result of God speaking. Do you realize that? I mean, sometimes we look for signs in nature that God exists. Do you realize that we should look at nature and just know that he exists? In fact, let's go to, to Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us an amazing thing. It says here, For the invisible things of him, that's God, from the creation of the world, are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. Now look at this next quote up here. In the natural world, God has placed in the hands of the children of men the key to unlock the treasure house of his word. Is that amazing? How many of us try to unlock the treasure without a key? How many of us are trying to break and enter? Right? It'd be much easier if you just had a key. Went to academy. And I would lock my key in the room all the time. And we got pretty good at carding doors. But it was way easier when I didn't forget my key. Okay? The key to unlock the treasure house of the word is what? The unseen is illustrated by the seen. Divine wisdom, eternal truth, infinite grace are understood by the things that God has made. Isn't that amazing? We just drive by flowering trees, fruiting trees, grass, not even thinking, not even thinking that these are the keys to unlock the treasure house of the word. There's so much. This keeps going. This says, trace in the Bible the similitudes drawn from nature. They should search out, they are these people, they should search out both in nature and in holy writ, every object representing Christ. Okay, some people preach Christ, Jesus, and we want people to accept Jesus because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And sometimes what we do is just try to use his name more often. Or we want to say it with more, like, energy. And maybe they'll get it then. But actually, what we need to do is trace out the things that the Bible says about Christ in nature. They should search out both in nature and holy writ every object representing Christ and those also that he employed in illustrating truth, like the vine. So the next time you go to a vineyard, it should be a different experience for you. Okay, the next time you plant a grapevine, it should be a different experience for you. Thus, here's the promise. 
Thus may they learn to see him in tree and vine, in lily and rose, in sun and star. They may learn to hear his voice in the song of birds, in the singing of trees, in the rolling thunder, and in the music of the sea, and every object in nature will repeat to them his precious lessons. Those who thus acquaint themselves with Christ. We're talking about abiding in Christ this week, right? If you're going to abide in Christ, you at least have to be acquainted with the person you're living with, right? Yes, those who thus acquaint themselves with Christ, the earth will nevermore be a lonely and desolate place. It will be their father's house, which is what he wanted to create in the beginning. Filled with the presence of him, who once dwelt among men. Is that a powerful thing? The one who's so holy that we can't even touch the hem of the mountain came as Christ. And, and do you understand the lady who had the issue of blood? She thought to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. Right? Nature, although it doesn't reflect its full glory like it did in the garden, we can still touch the hem of it. And the lessons that it will teach us will be powerful. When the human agents exercise their faculties to acquire knowledge, to become deep thinking men, when they, as the greatest witness for God and truth, shall have won in the field of investigation of vital doctrines concerning the salvation of the soul, that glory may be given to God of heaven as supreme, then even judges and kings will be brought to acknowledge in the courts of justice, in parliaments and councils, that the God who made the heavens and the earth is the only true and living God, the author of Christianity, the author of all truth, who instituted the seventh-day Sabbath when the foundations of the world were laid, when the morning stars sang together, and all of the sons of God shouted together with joy. Now, if we just stop there, that's basically Elder Lemon's sermon today. He's saying, we're still not getting it. We're still not reflecting the character of Christ. We're still not going to be that witness at the end time to let Jesus come back like we should be. And so this is just saying all those things, that if we would fulfill these things, then all these things would come about. And look what it says very next thing. That's where it gets a little surprising. It says, all nature will bear testimony as designed for the illustration of the Word of God. Did you know inspiration tells us that the best way to reach heathens, which we labor hard to reach people who don't know the truth, the best way to reach heathens is through illustrations of nature. It's just told us straight as day. And we have amazing groups of people trying to come up with strategies of how to reach the unreached, reach the unchurched. But we're told the best way is illustrations of nature. Do you know why? Because they live there. They've seen them. They know them. And it says, the invisible things of him from the foundation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. And then it says, so that they have no excuse. This is talking about the heathen. The person who's never even heard the Bible actually knows deep back somewhere of the invisible things of God because they've seen nature. And so when you can draw those things together, it'll bring to life the creator 
the seventh day Sabbath, all the doctrines it says here, and we will be a testimony of the world. Even the, the judges, parliaments, councils, all these high powerful places on earth will be reached with such simple, simple, simple methods. Simple methods. It says the natural and the spiritual are to be combined. And by the way, this is just a continuation. Okay, this is not a new slide. This is just the next, con the next continuation in the, in the thought. It says the natural and the spiritual are to be combined in the studies of our schools. Now, this is in the context of schools, but you can see here it's a principle that applies outside. The operations of agriculture illustrate the Bible lessons. The laws obeyed by the earth reveal the fact that it is under the masterly power of an infinite God. The same principles run through the spiritual and the natural world. Divorce God and his wisdom from the acquisition of knowledge, and you have a lame, one-sided education. I received that one, lame, one-sided education, I have to tell you. You might say, well, yeah, you're talking about nature a lot or agriculture because that's your thing. See, we have lots of ministries where that's our thing, but no. This is saying that we're not supposed to be one-sided because we'll be lame. It's like walking with only one leg, okay? We shouldn't divorce God and his wisdom from our acquisition of knowledge. It was his wisdom to set up the Garden of Eden as our school. It, going on, it says, it would be dead to, this, to all the saving qualities which give power to man so that he is incapable of acquiring immortality through faith in Christ. Is that powerful? Do you see that? It says, dead to all the saving qualities which give power to man so that he is incapable of acquiring immortality through faith in Christ. That's a deep, powerful statement that we should heed. The author of nature is the author of the Bible. It's the same word, just one in English, A, B's, and C's, and the other ones in trees and grass and flowers and fruit and vines. Which one is actually more 3D? Now, the problem out here is that an enemy has sown things out there. So we cannot rightly understand God. We can see that there's a struggle, and if we attributed every attribute of nature to God instead of the struggle, we would come up with an inconsistency of God. So we need this precious, precious word. We need to understand this. So they both need to be combined. Creation and Christianity have one God. All who, this is another promise, all who engage in the acquisition of knowledge should aim to reach the highest round of progress. Let their field of study be as broad as their powers can compass, making God their wisdom, clinging to him who is infinite in knowledge, who can reveal the secrets hidden for ages, who can solve the most difficult problems for minds that believe in him, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light that no man can approach unto. This is saying that we can actually dwell in the light that no man can approach unto. The living witness for Christ, following on to know the Lord, shall know that his goings forth are prepared as the morning. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. By honesty and industry, with a proper care of the body, applying every power of the mind to the acquisition of knowledge and wisdom in spiritual things, every soul may be complete. That means we use the term perfect a lot of times, but complete, whole, healed in Christ, who is the perfect pattern 
of a complete man. His education. So now we're going to Jesus. You know, we talk about Jesus. We say we want Jesus. But do we really look to him as our example? His education, Jesus' education, was gained from heaven-appointed sources. Here they are. From useful work, from the study of the scriptures, from nature, and from the experiences of life. It says those are heaven-appointed agencies. God's lesson books full of instruction to all who bring to them the willing hand, the seeing eye, and the understanding heart. His intimate acquaintance with the scriptures show how diligently his early years were given to the study of God's word and spread out before him was the great library of God's created works. I have more quotes, but for time, I'm going to end with two, two texts, okay? This says that God's intimate acquaintance was the scriptures with the scriptures shows that he had the great library the great library of God's creative works before him okay another principle that I don't have a quote up here for but you can look it up Ellen White says that Jesus is the greatest teacher the world has ever known you might have heard that quote but she also says that a teacher cannot impart that which he does not have by experience so when Jesus talks about a vine that means he actually dealt with vines. Do you understand? When he, when he talks about fig trees, he dealt with fig trees because he was imparting that which we, he had by experience. So from the age of 12, where we almost have no record of him other than being obedient, all the way to his public ministry, he was spending a lot of time in nature, being faithful in his father's carpenter shop with useful labor. He was studying, studying these lessons of nature so that he could, he could speak the word in such simple, simple terms. Let's go to Acts, the book of Acts. We started this by talking about an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Right? We're going to go to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to start... Um, we're actually going to start and finish in verse 11, but before you read it, um, this is talking about the day of Pentecost, the early rain, right? The, that first outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And you'll remember there what happened. What was the sign? A flame came down from heaven, rested on their heads, and they spoke in tongues. So we talk about the speaking in tongues, but we don't really talk about what they talked about when they got the tongues. And so the Bible lists all the languages that they were able to talk about, and these are people observing. So they said, we heard them talk in this language, in that language, in this language, in that language. In 11, it finish, finishes that up. It says, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Did you catch that? When the early apostles received that first outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, the people were speaking in tongues, yes, but they were speaking the wonderful works of God. The wonderful works of God. There's a song of Moses in Revelation. And maybe you even know the scripture song for it. It's speaking of those victors, the 144,000, which I think they're going to talk about 
later tonight. You know, the 144,000 and the character that they have to have. And it says that these can sing the Song of Moses. And do you know what the words of that Song of Moses are? Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, O King of Saints. The 144,000, the early ones that received the Holy Spirit, an intimate understanding of the scriptures and the works of God's hand. And so I just want to leave you today with, if you have noticed a greater importance, a more clear calling to raise your eyes to the things that you can see, the things your hands can handle, the things that came from God's own mouth, then I want you to pray the prayer with me silently. You can pray, and I'll just close with prayer. Our Father in heaven, it is such a great privilege that you still let us see your wonderful works. Both in our heart, we can see the changes as the Holy Spirit works. We can see, um, you know, in our gardens, one day we come, and when we leave and come back, the next day things are better. The fruit is more fully developed. And we say, who did this? Well, I was gone. And of course, it's you. We thank you for trying to feed us, trying to teach us, and being patient with us. I pray that each one will lose that loneliness and dreariness that can exist in the world as you promise that those who seek to understand you through your creative works, this world can no longer be a lonely place because it will be your house again. And so I pray that that will be the case until we can literally see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.